This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Chase Million, the CEO of Million Concepts, a research and consulting company with expertise in planetary science, remote sensing, and astronomy. Chase describes himself as passionate about correctness in data analysis and scientific methodology, but also relentlessly practical and solution-oriented, and I absolutely love that. So Chase, your company does research, consulting, and on-demand support, which is a cool, not-often-seen model of research software engineering that I'm excited to talk about with you today. So firstly, welcome to RSE Stories. Thank you. So let's dive right in. Do you want to tell us about your background, your training, and what led you to where you are today? I've always been very into science and was not sure how that would translate into a career. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a high energy particle physicist because I'd visited Fermilab and it's just a cool place. The science there looks like the science in movies where there's like duct tape and tinfoil and things people sitting at huge computer consoles. So I, uh, I ended up at, at Cornell University as an undergraduate. They have a particle acceler accelerator on campus. And that was one of the things that pulled me there. And then in my first, second, maybe second semester, I was working at the bowling alley on campus, which took up every Saturday night. So I had very little social life. And I met a guy at a party who said, I need an undergraduate to help me with the project. Might you be interested? And I said, sure. And I showed up to his office the next week. And I, I worked for him I, for two or three months, I think, before I realized that what we were working on was the Mars exploration rovers that would be launching to Mars in a few years. And that things I was doing were going to directly impact that mission. At that point, that, that, became, that became an interest in me, especially once we saw the, the launch and the landing and the excitement of those things, I decided that was, that was an experience I wanted to have over and over again. So I switched from particle physics to, to planetary science, uh, but I was also a, a very, very bad student. I, I slept through class a lot and did not particularly like homework. I liked research a lot, though, probably because I was a bad student. I didn't get into any grad schools. Uh, but I got a job straight out of undergrad working on the Galax mission, in part because I'd had some mission experience. I, I was the second string software engineer for the ground imaging calibration pipeline. So my job was, was really to just maintain that pipeline that had already been operating for 10 years. The title didn't exist then, but that was an RSE role. That was what I was doing. I got sort of a taste for it, and I also, I also got a taste for, for things I didn't think were doing we're being done well, not by that mission necessarily, but by everyone, just the, the way organizations and projects thought about how to deploy technical labor and programming labor. So as that project was nearing an end, I just I decided long since that I didn't want to go to grad school. I'd seen enough of my friends go through that and, and it didn't appeal to me. Didn't think I'd be any better at homework in grad school than I was in, as an undergrad. And I decided to start my company. Started in 2011, right after I left the Galax mission. I had an early contract to develop follow-on software to Galax, and and that provided a little bit of a a little bit of a maintenance trickle for many years. While I just wrote proposals, proposal after proposal for years and years, I probably wrote 50 or 60, and they were all unsuccessful. I was learning the process as I went. I had a couple people 
a couple other scientists in the field who who did mentor me a little bit, but I didn't have the sort of institutional structure that most people have when they're learning how to write proposals. So I had to figure all that out. I nearly gave up because my, my contract had ended and there didn't seem to be anything else. And then I got my first grant funded. And how did that feel to get your <laughs> yeah, first grant funded? It was terrifying. It's one thing to write the proposal to do the project. And it is another thing to now be you know, on the hook with a contract with the federal government that says, uh, this is the thing I'm going to do. It was really scary. It was a big change for the company. And it's not a thing typically done by organizations that are not universities. I got, you know, the lawyers and the accountants and we figured it out, but it was more the, more the organizational part that was terrifying. Although the, you know, managing a research project as a PI with no PhD and no institutional affiliation was also quite terrifying. So this is sort of a related question that I have to grants. When you're writing a grant, what percentage of that is kind of reading the description very carefully and trying to write the thing that you think they're looking for versus having an idea yourself and then looking for the right grant for it? I've seen it done both ways. I've definitely done it both ways. The way it tends to work for me is I have a pool of project ideas that are sort of always floating around. That's kind of why the company is called Million Concepts. I have no shortage of ideas. I have this pool of ideas sort of floating around. And then when new funding opportunities arise, I kind of go through my mental Rolodex of all of those projects and see if any of them are applicable or can be adapted in some way. And then those are the proposals I tend to write that tend to be more successful are the things that I'm already interested in. Another way to do it is to try to appeal to what you think the organization wants. And I have less success with those if it's not something I'm already interested in. Maybe they can just sense it. Uh, maybe some, sometimes I feel like some of those, maybe not the grant so much, but some of the contracts are written with a few organizations already in mind, and I'm not one of them. It doesn't matter necessarily how well I write the pitch. It's not going to tick all the boxes they want because there's some other organization that already ticks all of those boxes. Yeah, so we, I got the one grant. feel like I, I started to understand the language of grant writing too. And we started working on that project and working on more grants that my business partner, Michael St. Clair, has since the beginning been helping me write these grants. And I, I was never able to bring him on to a project. And then about three years ago, I was finally able to bring him on. And now he, he works for me full time. We're up to seven employees at different levels of, of effort on a bunch of different projects uh, in planetary science and astronomy. There are a few Galax projects. We work on Mars Science Laboratory, Mars 2020. We've done data with Arecibo, possibly one of the last data sets collected by Arecibo. Other radio astronomy projects, we have a proposal to, to be involved with Viper, which would be awesome. We just keep trying to do cool things now that we have some momentum. It took it took, I feel like the backstory is necessary because it was very close to not being a company anymore. I was very, I was planning to become a, a handyman. That was my backup career. I was seriously a month away from pulling the trigger and not having a company again. And the one thing happened to come in that has allowed me to, to continue and build on. And now I, I feel like we're achieving some momentum and I'm very happy with it. We'd like to expand outside of academia. We think we've learned things that have, that have value in industry ways of approaching problems that, that we utilize in academia that the industry people might not. Um, and we'd like to expand other fields too, but I'm very happy with where we are. Wow, that's quite a story. So 
if I understand you correctly, you found this work that you love and the path of, you know, the traditional academic or the graduate student wasn't right for you. And founding a company was this alternative path to pursue what you loved. And it, it was a bit rocky, you know, it, it kind of sheds light on this idea that if you have a desire to work on research software and help in this area, but you don't want that traditional path, there's not really a clear cut path for you and you have to like forge your own. And then it's just kind of luck of the draw if, if things work out or if, or if they don't work out and you end up becoming, you know, a handyman, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So RSC as a term didn't exist 10 years ago, or it wasn't in my awareness anyway. And it wasn't something I thought of myself as, and I still kind of don't, unless I'm talking to people who know what that term is. So I describe myself as a programmer or a scientist or an engineer, depending on who I'm talking to and and which of those terms will resonate with whatever point I'm trying to make or whatever they're coming to the situation with. But I did have, I have a clear memory when I failed to get into any grad schools. So this is going back to when I was completing undergraduate. I have a memory of thinking, working through in my own head, the fact that there was nothing really to stop me from doing science. So there were, by not being in in grad school, there were perhaps institutions and maybe communities that I didn't have access to. But in planetary science has a long history of the data being public. So all the data was public. I could look at it and use it. I knew the processes of science. I could do all of those things there. It wasn't a rejection from the field of science as much as, as it felt like that. And then I continued to build on that attitude, which is, I just continually thought, well, there's nothing really stopping me from doing this thing. When I first started my, my business and I talked to people about applying to grants with no higher degree and no institutional backing, a lot of people told me that it was impossible. Even you know, people in administrative positions at funding agencies are like, well, that's I mean, there's no real rule against it, but that just doesn't happen. The, the best anyone could come up with, the closest example was uh, Bill Baruki, who was the PI of Kepler. I think he only had a master's degree. That would be a wonderful career to have, but I don't aspire to be as successful as Mr. Baruki. So it was, it was presented to me as, as impossible, but I couldn't really figure out what the real reason was for it to be impossible. There were some cultural issues, maybe. People would see that the the letters were missing after my name and just and just write that off. You know, I had to build a record of doing things, I think, just keep showing up. At several points in my career so far, I've encountered a general vibe of people thinking something was not possible and I couldn't figure out why. So I just tried anyway. That's fantastic. And that's totally the right attitude to have when you're successful. It feels very good. I'll, I'll leave it at that. So you started Million Concepts a decade ago, and it's, it's hard for me to even believe, you know, I started my research career, I think, in 2009, and just to imagine the changes that we've gone through in the last 10 years. So if you look at the research ecosystem then and now, what do you see as the most different and what have been the implications for your company? The attitude towards software as a research product and software as documentation for scientific methodology has shifted a lot in the direction that I wanted. I presented many years ago, I think a poster at the Planetary Data Workshop, which is the conferences where technical people in planetary science meet. And it was just a wall of text. It was basically a a blog post on a poster. I tried to explain that all of 
these rules about making your research software public and archiving your research software along with the scientific data or publishing your research software along with the paper itself in order to enable reproducibility. All of those things were coming. They couldn't be stopped. The technology was pointing in that direction and it made sense for the science. And that as the community of people who develop the software and do the research, we should get on board more quickly so that we could define what those standards would be instead of having them imposed upon us. I think that's been right. And, and fortunately to everyone's credit, People got on board with that pretty quickly, and the community has become very active in making sure all those things are done and done well, and more and more scientists are welcoming it. Certainly 10 years ago when I talked to just your normal university research scientist about publishing the software that was the internal product of their lab, a lot of them at least got nervous about it. Not that I think they were hiding anything, but you know, everyone's code is a mess. It's ugly and it can be less than flattering to release your code, especially when it's supporting a scientific result. If the code is ugly, then what does that say about the scientific result? So people got very nervous about that. I also think there was an attitude in some fields that the research software developed within one's lab was a sort of proprietary technology. So this is the toolkit we've built up over decades. And like a scanning electron microscope that we have found a way to buy, it's sort of the exclusive domain of this research group and our close collaborators and the occasional person we let in, but it's not for general consumption. That attitude has also largely changed and both top down and bottom up. And it's becoming more and more standard that an expectation of funding agencies and journals and communities that if you're publishing science that is that uses software, then you should publish the software along with it. I've seen those changes as well. You know, it kind of makes sense if publishing is sort of the currency of success for our profession. If your code is like a piece of spaghetti and then someone finds like the tiniest error and then you have to retract your publication, that could possibly be years of work or a, a spike to a reputation. So it makes sense why culturally it's been so slow, I think, to get to the point where we are probably now where it's sort of standard, as you pointed out. So speaking of open code and open source, what is the Open Planetary Foundation? And more generally, how do you use open source software? Open Planetary is a, an international nonprofit registered in France that promotes open science and reproducible research. I wasn't there for, for what it fell out of, but I think it fell out of some of those meetings like the Planetary Data Workshop where the technical people, the RSEs in planetary science, not a term of art often used in that field, but the RSEs in planetary science found that we were only meeting once every year and it wasn't really enough to keep up to date on all of the technologies and share information and whatnot. So uh, Nicolas Manaud and Angelo Piorossi, and I, I don't know who else was involved in the original conception, formed Open Planetary. They asked me to be a board member in the founding as like an American contingent. We got a Slack and we got some members for a while. It was just discussion of during conferences. So the major planetary conferences, we'd all sort of get on the Slack and, and metagame. And over time, we've built a larger and larger membership. So a huge number of people in the field are there now. And every day there are discussions in our Slack about how to best access or process some piece of data or what we think standards should be around different kinds of data processing and software development. We try not to direct too much. We don't have that many rules and just see what it is. 
it's been cool to see it take off. And it really took off a lot more during COVID as many virtual things did. We started a weekly talk series, which I, I started right after the lockdown period sort of started because I knew that I would not see anyone other than my wife for months and months at that time. And it turned into almost a year. And I thought we should have a place once a week where we could get together and at least see that there are other humans breathing in the world. And the talks were sort of just an excuse to get all of those people in one place. But now we have a catalog of, I think, over 60 talks on all sorts of topics. We're also working on a planetary pie, which is analogous to AstroPy, which is the core Python library of the astronomical tools. We're, we're building an analogous one for planetary pie. It's just sort of a central meeting place for the RSEs in the field. Oh, that's totally fantastic. And I'm sure some of our listeners, as I just did, got excited about pie. And um, yeah, I, I think these sort of domain-based Python projects are really fantastic. To step back a little bit, probably some of our listeners aren't totally familiar with planetary science and, for example, the content that you might find in Planetary Pi. Can you explain what it means to a layperson and then what it means to do planetary science in terms of research questions and kind of analyses for a research software engineer? Planetary science is the field that studies planetary bodies, mostly in the solar system. So that would include things that you know, the IAU calls planets and things that the IAU calls planetoids and, and everything in between from dust to Jupiter. Much but not all is concerned with analyzing data collected by spacecraft, often robotic spacecraft in orbit around or on the surface of other planets, although certainly ground-based analyses are part of planetary science and terrestrial geology for analog studies are part of planetary science and all sorts of physics modeling. One of the things I like about the field of planetary science is that it's hugely interdisciplinary. You need chemists and geologists and physicists and astronomers, and engineers, and all of these people working together towards a common cause, often answering what seems like a simple question, like, was there ever water in this hole? The data from planetary science has a long history of being publicly accessible in, in the U.S. in a system called the Planetary Data System, which is a tremendous archive of the legacy of NASA's exploration of the solar system and the raw data from missions predating Apollo back to Mariner and before. All of that data is available there for anyone in the world to go get and look at and process and use. So we have, in my opinion, a, a sort of unique situation where almost everyone in the field is relying on the same set of data to do different kinds of science versus in many other fields of science, people have their own data sets to do their own science with. Also, it is very difficult to do planetary science at the scale of collecting data unless you are in a massive group. It shares, shares that property, I think, with high-energy particle physics, where it is too expensive to launch a mission to the surface of Mars for one research group to do, although that may be changing soon. But historically, these are missions at the level of collaborating nation states with hundreds or thousands of people collaborating towards one project. Those are what I think are some of the critical aspects of planetary science. Some of the things I like about it. You get to meet a lot of people. You get to think about a lot of things. A lot of the people in the field are generalists and think very broadly about things. And very long term, some of these missions have 20-year time horizons. There are missions being proposed where it is expected that the mission will not really begin until everyone who was alive at launch is dead. 
a lot of what I am most interested in and a lot of what I have done has to do with the calibration, processing, and representation of images from the mass-mounted cameras on the rover. So I worked on PanCam as an undergrad, and now we're affiliated with MassCam and MassCamZ on MSL in Mars 2020. Let me explain the chain of data. The rover is requested to make some measurement. Take a picture of that rock over there. The rover takes that measurement and the data is stored on the rover. And then at some point, a satellite orbiting Mars passes over the rover and the rover sends up the data to the satellite and the satellite acts as a relay and sends the data back to Earth. That kicks off when it arrives at Earth, a, a chain of processing at various institutions all around the world where the bits from the camera, which are, would be incomprehensible to a person, are, are turned into not only images that we would recognize as images that look like images from a cell phone, but also uh, scientifically valid images, which is to say that it is not just that the rock in the picture looks like a rock or that it looks like the rock that it is a picture of, but that we can take measurements of individual pixels in the image of the rock, and those measurements tell us things about what the rock is composed of. And the part of that chain that we work most with is turning the image that is an image that you would recognize as an image, but is not necessarily scientifically valid in the way that I just described, into images that are scientifically valid in that way, and also representations of those data that tell the scientists different things about the environment that they might be seeing. These cameras are, are multispectral, and the way they are multispectral is that they have a little filter wheel on them, and the, the filter wheel rotates, and you take a picture of the scene through different filters, and those filters select for certain wavelengths. So we end up with a stack of images in different wavelengths of the scene and different combinations of those images, different stretches on them, different methods of processing, say principal component analysis or what's called a decorrelation stretch. Different represent representations of that data give the scientists different information about the scene, which they can then use to inform what kinds of detailed analysis they'll make and ultimately what recommendations they'll make for what the rover is going to do next. Is it going to collect a sample there or take another picture or is this, are we done here and we can, we can move on. So going back to your company and this idea of innovation, what have you found it possible to do from working within a company that you don't think you could have done from an academic or a government organization? I think in hindsight, if I'd gone through a traditional route, I would probably be about where I am now in terms of my career progression. I might have had less control over what projects I was working on specifically. When I started out, part of my thinking was that there was not a university in the country that would allow me to conceive of, propose, and then run my own research projects. That was a big deal for me, is that I I had specific ideas about things that I wanted to do, specific projects I'd wanted to do. I'd looked around and talked to people in the universities that I, I had connections to, and it seemed like it would just be impossible within those systems to actually have ownership over my own projects because the, the universities are largely set up to support faculty as the people who have ideas and propose those ideas and then run those projects. And there were certainly faculty who I could have worked with who would have let me do the things I wanted to do or try to do the things I wanted to do. But I had a little bit too much pride and ego to let someone take the credit for that. But ultimately, I think it was a hard road to get to a place that I, I could have gotten to. 
perhaps through an easier road, although I, I don't think my personality would have really let me do that. Why do you think it is that more academics don't start companies? Is it that the person that tends to be drawn to academia isn't as business-minded as the, you know, as much as you need to be, or that academia stifles this desire because they make you feel like you need the safety of the academic institution or something entirely different? It could be those things. There have been a few things that I've observed that, a few general patterns I've observed, and certainly these don't apply to everyone. One thing I've seen repeatedly is a sort of low-grade hostility to what people euphemistically call commercial activity. I don't know what commercial activity means in the sense that I do it that a university doesn't, but there's a sort of suspicion of businesses coming from academics and academic institutions. I think that's a little bit of it. There is also, in starting and running a business, a huge amount of administration and paperwork and accounting and bookkeeping and contracts. And it's my least favorite part of the job. And I think when my colleagues who are in universities, as a half brag, talk about how they have, they have administrations to do that for them, I'm a little jealous. I think they have a point there. So I think that's a barrier to people. It's also just a different way of thinking. I'm still getting my head around it. This is almost 20 years ago when I started as an undergraduate, and I was on the path to a research career in academia. That's what I thought I wanted. And it's been more recently, the last five years, certainly not before I started my company, that I've changed my way of thinking to more of a business mindset in terms of how do we, how do we manage the organization and the growth of the organization. But also since I've made that switch in my thinking, I've recognized it in other scientists who I see are successful PIs of very productive research groups. I can see that they had learned the same lessons or come to the same conclusions about, for example, how you get projects done, how you build a coalition of people interested in in doing things, how you advertise your work, which is academics call it a poster session and I call it a room full of billboards. I think I sort of arrived at the same place I would have anyway. And I also think that staying in academia seems like and probably is the easier path for almost everyone. I think that's what stops people. So when you think of your customers, Mm -hmm. I guess if I were to think of like a research software engineering company, there's kind of two customer bases. There's sort of like acting as the PI where you go after those same like really big grants. But I've also seen some companies that, for example, will go directly to researchers and do kind of smaller projects on a consulting basis. How would you break down your customer base with respect to those two areas? So the original idea for Million Concepts is that we would be on-demand research software engineers. I assembled sort of a talent pool of people I knew who were interested in doing a little bit of side work and who I, I knew had different skill sets machine learning and database design and and things like that. I figured we would just ploy as needed. At small universities, faculty there often don't have access to some sort of in-house pool of tech talent. At large universities, many large universities now have some sort of pool of general full-stack developer tech talent that can be put in and out of projects as needed. But my original idea was to target those researchers at small universities who didn't have access to professional developers and fill that need. What I found out quickly is that the timelines for how academic research is funded in the U.S., 
and also just the cultural way in which research projects are conceived didn't really allow for that mode of operation, at least not initially. The reason is, first of all, most research projects, I think, start as sort of two people having a conversation about wouldn't, wouldn't it be cool if we did this thing? And then they bring in sort of a third person and then they write a research proposal. They tend to be like sort of little close-knit groups of people who already know each other or maybe they know they need some specific skill and they reach out to that person. But if you don't already know those people and you're not known to them, you're not gonna get into the research proposal. And especially 10 years ago, there seemed to be less appreciation for the amount of work that writing software could take and also the amount of benefit you from having it done professionally, or at least for, for supporting it really well so that it can be done very well. That was the, the first barrier that I think prevented us from doing that. Work. And then the second one was that typically you write, so you might spend three months writing a research proposal and you put the research proposal in. So I figure my expectation value from the time we submit the research proposal to the time we hear about it is six months. And then often the project is not slated to start for another three months or six months. And I, I couldn't figure out, and I think because it's not a solvable problem, I couldn't figure out how to get anyone in my talent pool to agree that we're going to submit a proposal right now, and you're going to promise that if and only if this proposal is funded, which we'll say has a 20% chance, then one year from now, and then three years after that, you will be available with for 10% of your time. And you have to guarantee that when you sign on to this proposal, you're, you're going to sign a thing that says, I will do the work as outlined in this proposal. You have to agree now at a 20% chance that one year from now and three years from thereafter, 10% of your time goes to my project. And that's a very, very difficult sell. It's a very, very difficult to even make that argument in a, in a research proposal that this person will be available, especially if it's a person who's, whose time is flexible enough, they can buy back their time that way. And likewise, I couldn't figure out how to keep anyone on payroll for that time. What am I going to do with them for a year and with no money coming in? It was something I wasn't willing to risk other people's projects on. I wasn't willing to say to them, okay, this proposal hinges on this person who I can't guarantee their availability for. So those projects largely didn't come. It wasn't something I was willing to promise. And then that, that timeline of a year out before any money comes in the door, and then that amount of money doesn't even cover your full salary, not only makes it hard to run a company, makes it hard to plan, but it also made me really, uh, really bored and hungry. Because for the first year, especially for the first five years, as I was writing those proposals, it was really like just desperation. Like, okay, we got to get something. We got to get something. We got to get something. The answer to your question is, it is a chicken and egg problem that I do not know how to get out of, except to build your own train. There wasn't a way to jump into it that I could see that would work in the way that I originally conceived. I needed to have a couple of my own things going that I could rely on. And that could provide a, a little bit of a safety net and a little bit of room to breathe. And then I could start figuring out how to take on smaller projects. That sounds so challenging and stressful too. And I'm, I'm glad you're far enough along. So you've, you're over those sort of initial humps and you have your chickens and your eggs uh, in the same train and you're still moving forward. That's a terrible let's, metaphor, but like... Let's, no, let's keep mixing <laughs> metaphors. I love a mixed metaphor. <laughs> that's, that's, I literally had this visualization in my head of like a chicken with an egg just like chilling in a train car. And I was like, yeah, I, I think it's something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the final topic that I want to bring up today has to do with color. 
I read that you are colorblind and that gives you literally a unique perspective on the work that we do. So uh, what are we doing well in terms of accessibility for research visualizations and what can we do better at? Those bios, that's from the website and Michael and I have biographies up there and we wrote each other's biography because neither of us likes to brag too much on ourselves. That was Michael's contribution and it was also a bit of whimsy, but I think is also kind of true. I find that when I look at images, when I look at scientific representations of data, my default assumption is that there is information in the image that is not available to me. Uh, that just has to be my default assumption because I don't know what I can't see. I think that does lead me sometimes to interrogate the data or the representations of the data in ways that other people might not. And the, the flip side of that is that a lot of scientific representations of data are not necessarily colorblind friendly. And it's a, it's a really hard problem. I don't, I don't get mad about it. Even I fail sometimes. We try to do the best we can, but it's, it's already a hard problem to represent complex scientific data graphically. And it only makes it harder to then say, well, here is this certain combination of parameters that is no longer available to you. And by the way, you as a person who can't see color can't actually sense what those combinations of parameters are. You just have to take our word for it. Uh, people are doing better, which I also appreciate. Uh, another thing which I've noticed, I don't think I've seen discussed, but speaks to my point about assuming that there's information in the image that is not available to me, which is even if everyone did the most excellent job possible of representing their data in a way that was accessible to me, I would nonetheless always have the cognitive load of being required to assume that there was information in the image that wasn't available to me. Because I have no way of, I have no way of telling, um, is this image fully colorblind friendly and this one is not? I have to come at them all with a deep suspicion. It's kind of an unsolvable problem. Like there's a little bit you can do to make it more accessible, but I'm always going to approach it as though it's not because I have no other choice. Yeah, and that's interesting. Maybe that skepticism makes you like a more careful observer when you're looking at things. So it's, you know, the, the silver lining, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Neurodivergent superpower. Plus one. I, I can definitely relate to that. Although I have, I have different superpowers, which some days don't seem like superpowers. <laughs> so we're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. If you were to meet someone like yourself today, like me, you went out to your mailbox and he was standing there and he was like, hi, I need, I need advice. And this person didn't want to take the traditional academic path either. What would you tell them? I do meet those people. And one of my big bugbears is I don't think graduate school is as necessary for a productive career in science as many people assume. It certainly has value for some people is absolutely necessary. For some career paths, still essentially mandatory. So you're not going to become a tenured faculty member without a PhD unless you're truly exceptional. But I think a lot of people who are interested in a career in research go into a PhD because it is the next thing. And a lot of people, and a lot of people I know, leave the PhD completely, now completely disinterested in research and burned out by academia and now they have the hard problem of transitioning their academic career to a career in industry. What I generally suggest is if you're unsure about a PhD, don't get one. You can apply to a PhD later. A lot of people do it later. If it's something you wanna do later, it's open to you. But in terms of simply having a career, 
I found almost always that years of experience matches one for one with years of a PhD. And there, there are lots of jobs in research science doing incredibly cool things that are open to people who don't have one. You, you don't necessarily need, even need a master's degree. It's okay. You don't have to do those things if those are not things you want to do. You can go get a job and you can still get a job doing cool things. Or if not exactly the cool things you want to do, you can get a job that's clearly on the path to doing the cool things you want to do. When you aren't programming, what do you like to do for fun? I am a musician. I've played the guitar for, for 35 years. I have a guitar in my office and I play all the time. I'm also a magician member of the Magic Castle. So while I was a, an employee at Caltech, I took classes at the Magic Castle and learned sleight of hand magi- uh, magic and took the audition and became a, a magician member there. So I like to study magic, practice magic. It's just an interesting way of thinking about things. And I, I like to play video games. I think it used to be when I was young, video games were only a thing young people play, but now video games are a thing people my age play too. And I recently took up fishing. I'd never really gone fishing. And then this summer, there was a pandemic and a beautiful outside, and I started fishing. That's super awesome. And plus one on the video games. So final question, I'm dying to know, to go back to the research questions for planetary science, was there water in the hole? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there was water in the hole. (laughs) There was water in all of them. It's just a question of when the water was there and how much of the water was there. So Chase, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I learned a lot about planetary science and I appreciate you being able to offer your perspective on an alternative path for a research career. I hope to see you active on the various RSC Slacks. I think I saw you on the US RSC Slack and I wish you a happy end of 2021 toward hopefully a better 2022. Thank you very much.